All right. Welcome back, everybody. Thankful to see you all back here again tonight. Um, so last week we dove in talking about how over the course of Israel's history from really the time that David ascended to the throne up until the exile and even when they returned to the land after the exile, this expectation kind of built for this greater king who would fulfill David's kingship, who would sit on the throne of David and who would actually accomplish everything the king was supposed to accomplish. He would conquer the enemies perfectly. He would defend the people and he would bring the people to a consummated rest. And so as that mystery continued to develop and to unfold, this character of the Messiah began to form in the minds of the people. And so tonight we're going to talk, though, um, a little bit more broadly about God's overarching plan of redemption. Because when you get to Jesus, the incarnation, his death, resurrection, and the new covenant, then you see, that's where you see the fullness of God's plan come to realization. That's where you see, okay, this is what God has been doing all along. And so tonight we're going to look at kind of the foundations for Christ's incarnation, his work on earth, uh, culminating in the resurrection and the ascension. So let me pray and then we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for the glory that you reveal to us in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are a wise creator and a wise king, Lord, that you work through time and through history. You work in ways that are imperceptible at times to us. But Lord, everything, everything that happens in this universe is orchestrated perfectly for bringing about your glory and your purposes. Lord God, your kingdom is being built. And I thank you for your great work in history doing that. And I pray, Lord, that over our time tonight, we would discover more and more the richness of that history, the, the grandness of your plan, and all your awesome power in bringing it to pass. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, on your outline you have Isaiah 53, but I'm actually, we're going to wait and we're going to read that later. This is going to be another one like kind of last week where we're going to be all over the place. Uh, but especially we'll be spending time in Isaiah. Um, so you can turn over to Isaiah 53 and kind of hold your place there. We're going to be all over the place there. Um, so like I mentioned, the overarching grand plan of God is the advent of his kingdom, right? That is what God is doing. And so the Bible is the record of God's work of redemption um, as it is realized and enacted through history. That's the great thing. It's not like the Bible gives us this great kind of like blueprint of what God is doing. It's the actual historical record of what God is doing and then of what God is going to continue to do. He is establishing his kingdom through and among his elect people. And so we read about this and we experience it personally in time, in history. Uh, it's, you know, it's manifest through history and lived out in our lives. However, the foundation of this grand plan of God is rooted in his eternal purpose, his eternal counsel. So that's what we're going to look at tonight is that, you know, kind of taking a step back and seeing God's eternal plan, because what we've been talking about to this point are stages of historical development of God's plan. And so tonight we're looking at how it all kind of broadly works for God to accomplish the purposes that he set out to do from all eternity. And that's really also important to understand where the continuity of scripture comes from. That's one of the glorious things about the Bible that I hope you guys are appreciating through this class, that you know the Bible written over the course of 
thousands of years by dozens of different authors, different books, different languages, all the rest, and yet it tells one cohesive, unified story. And the reason why the Bible can have that kind of cohesive union, given its nature, is that it all is rooted in the one plan of God. And we're told in Ephesians 1 what that plan is from all eternity, that we were predestined from eternity for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. But not only that, that God set forth Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. That's the grand plan of God. And we're a part of that. We're saved. We're brought into fellowship with God. We're adopted as sons of God. But all of that is part of the bigger work of God in reconciling all things to himself in Christ. Setting the world right in Jesus Christ. Bringing the world to consummation. And... Throughout scripture, we're given some glimpses behind the curtain of this counsel of God, this plan that God has set forth from all eternity, which was realized in history through Jesus Christ. And this is a plan that arises um, within the Godhead itself, within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um and it's a plan, uh, this, this eternal plan and purpose of God also serves as the foundation for our new covenant relationship with God. Because this is, you know, th- this lesson is going to transition us into the new covenant. And so it's important to understand that this eternal counsel of God is the foundation for our new covenant relationship with God. And... So this plan, this eternal counsel, is sometimes referred to by some theologians as the covenant of redemption. You might have heard that before. Um, and you know, basically, they will teach that from all eternity, there has been a covenant between especially God the Father and God the Son, in which um, the, you know, the Son makes certain promises, the Father makes certain promises, and... You know, you have this covenant relationship that exists between the members of the Godhead. And you know, I don't want to spend too much time on this, because this is like one of those sort of fine points of theology that sometimes people get bogged down in when discussing covenant theology. But this is a place where I actually disagree with the book that I'm using, Sam Ranahan's book, The Mystery of Christ, His Kingdom, and His Covenant. He'll say that there is this covenant of redemption, I don't, I don't like using that language because I believe biblically a covenant includes sanctions. We've talked about that, penalties for disobedience. When you talk about an agreement between God the Father and God the Son, there's no penalties for disobedience because disobedience isn't even really a possibility within the Godhead. It's not like the Son is going to revolt against the Father. So that's just one of those you know kind of technical points why I don't like using the language covenant of redemption um i think that's one of the examples of people trying to kind of cram scripture into a system however that aside i don't like i said don't want to spend a lot of time on that there definitely without a doubt is an agreement a pact uh, you know a you know a solemn agreement between god the father and God the Son, within the, tri- uh, the the members of the Trinity, there is this infallible purpose that includes real obligations on the members of the Godhead. And so it's important for us to understand this agreement, because like I mentioned, this is the foundation of our salvation, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have agreed in their eternal counsel to accomplish this plan of redemption um and hopefully this becomes more clear as we go through tonight and kind of laying some of the groundwork for it and again it is primarily an agreement between the father and the son the spirit serves as witness to the agreement and also as the helper 
for the Son and accomplishing his purposes. We're going to talk about all of this as we go through tonight. And so, again, there's covenantal elements here. Even if there's not sanctions, you have agreements, you have you know promises of blessing, and you have requirements of obedience that we're going to look at. Are you guys okay so far? I know some of this is a little bit abstract right now. Hopefully it gets a little more concrete. But stop me if there's any questions. Um, so this agreement between the Father and the Son, it's not like we just kind of came up with this idea. This arises out of Scripture. And particularly, this idea is developed by the prophet Isaiah with his description of God's servant and this agreement that exists between God and his servant. And we talked last week about how the prophets kind of proclaimed what was going to come, what Israel would expect, but they did it in a way that was a mystery. And so the people couldn't fully grasp it. They were getting an idea of kind of the shape of what God was doing, but it was still a mystery. And that's the case also with the servant described in Isaiah. You get this uh, this character who is going to, you know, accomplish these certain works. He's going to bring this stuff to pass, but it's still a mystery to the people. We're not sure who this servant is. He's kind of like a king, but he's also very humble. He's going to be exalted, but he's also going to suffer. You have these different elements, and so there's a lot of mystery there. But Isaiah does begin to uh, show us, to reveal to us. This agreement between God and his servant. So I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 42. We'll start there. Isaiah 42. And this is the the introduction of this servant character that arises here in Isaiah. Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 7. We read, Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So you have there God um, making this proclamation and describing this chosen servant. Um, And we get a lot of the, the characteristics of this servant. So we're told... You know, God says, this is my servant whom I've chosen, and he's given the servant a particular mission. Um, he, we're told some of the characteristics of who this servant is and the mission that he's been given by God. Um, we're told that he is beloved by God. He says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That God delights in this one whom he's chosen. Uh, We're also told that God has equipped him by his spirit. I've put my spirit upon him. And so he's going to be one who is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And as well, you see here, you know, we talk about mystery. You see three particular persons involved in this um, disagreement. You have God who's speaking. You have his servant, whom he's chosen, and then you have the spirit whom he has poured out on him. And so even here in the Old Testament, you have these kind of shadows of the Trinity where you have multiple people, persons involved in this description of this plan that God is bringing to pass. 
Um, and so part of the, you know, the role of the servant, he's going to be anointed with the Holy Spirit, equipped by God's Spirit. Again, he's given a mission by God. We're told in, um, in verse 3 that he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And so you have this reality of the, uh, the servant being called by God, being chosen and equipped by God for the purpose of bringing forth justice to the nations, of subduing the earth, of having dominion on God's behalf and for his glory. And this also goes along with what we were talking about last week. It kind of fits the expectations that the people of Israel had for a king who was going to do everything that the Davidic kings failed to do, that they were going to have a defender and a deliverer who was going to accomplish God's work, conquer God's enemies. We also see in this, again, we mentioned last week, Part of the expectation that was developing among Israel was the inclusion of the nations, that the God's people were not going to be limited just to Israel, but that the nations would be included in the covenant. And you have that here as well with this discussion of the servant, that he is going to bring forth justice in the earth. The coastlands wait for his law um, in verse 6, that he is going to be a light for the nations. And so you have, again, this expectation that the ends of the earth are going to be brought into submission to God by this servant. There's going to be all the nations coming to him. And so you see God calling and commissioning this servant for a specific task. Remember, we're talking about here an agreement between God the Father and God the Son. And we're trying to build that biblically, you know, how we can say there's an agreement from all eternity. You also see commitments here in Isaiah 42 on God's part, on the part of the Father. So, again, in verse 6, he says that... Um, well, we're told early on in verse 1 that God is going to... Um, give him the spirit. That's a promise by the Father, a guarantee. I will, you know, I've put my spirit on him. And then in verse 6, he says, I will take you by the hand and keep you. And so God is going to ensure that this servant fulfills his task uh, in the way that he's been called to do. He ensures that he is going to see this through to its completion. And so it's not simply going to be another king. Remember, by this point, by the time Isaiah is writing, David's offspring, the kings of Israel and Judah, have failed and failed and failed again. They're not living up to what they've been called to. And so what you have here with the servant is not just another king on the throne of Judah, but you have one who is actually going to accomplish what nothing in the Old Covenant could ever accomplish. You have this um, this description of a servant who is going to bring about a consummate rest, not just in Israel, but in all the earth. That's what's going on and what God is you know, promising. And we're told that God is going to make sure, lead him by the hand, ensure that his servant accomplishes all of this. And so it fits in with the expectation of the people. It's not the same as just any other king. And also, check this out as well. In verse 6, God says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. And so not only is this servant, he's not simply going to kind of reinforce or fulfill God's covenant that he's already made, but the servant himself is going to be given as a covenant. And so in you know, kind of in the person of this servant, there was going to be a covenant guarantee from God that this servant is going to embody a covenant between God and his people. And so it's not, again, it goes beyond simply David, the throne in Judah, and the kings that came from him, but it is this unique servant who himself would be a covenant between God and his people. Um, does that 
Does that kind of make sense? Again, it's vague and it's a mystery, but we're going to see it begin to be revealed. Another thing that God promises is that through this servant, there's going to be healing and liberty and restoration and wisdom and righteousness. He says in verse 7 that he's going to open the eyes of the blind and bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. And so you have God again promising success for this mission and describing what that success is going to look like. It's going to bring true revival, true reconciliation, true restoration, as I said, wisdom, healing, and all the rest of it. And so this particular servant is going to establish and ensure a new covenant order between God and his people. And this covenant order would extend beyond Israel to all the nations. And you see some of that agreement between God and the servant in Isaiah 42. Any questions Are you on that so far? Who the servant is? We'll get there. Okay. Take it. Just, just hold on, Andy. Don't get too far ahead. We gotta just pretend, I pretend that you're to like an Israelite. You know. Uh, turn over to Isaiah uh, chapter 50. You see some more of this, of these themes come up. And in Isaiah 50, you know, that's actually kind of the whole book of Isaiah is it builds up to this contrast between Israel, who is coming under judgment and getting sent off into exile, and then the servant who's going to do everything that Israel failed to do. And you see that very explicitly in Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9, we read, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. And so you have with this kind of a very explicit contrast between Israel and this servant who's going to come. So you have Israel who was supposed to act as the firstborn son of God, the heir of God's kingdom, right? That's the whole deal with uh, Pharaoh in the Exodus from Egypt. God is saying, you're not going to let my firstborn son go, so I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Israel is that role of the firstborn, again, the heir, the preeminent one, who are to be the recipients of his kingdom. And even in uh, Isaiah 50, at the beginning, before we started reading, God says, you know, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? Speaking to Israel, again, talking to Israel as kind of the firstborn son, who's now become an illegitimate son before God because they have failed to do what God called them to do. They've been disobedient and idolatrous, and so they're being disowned by God. They're being disinherited, kicked out of the land, and cut off from the promises. So Israel was supposed to act in that role of God's only, not only begotten, God's firstborn son. And then you have, so they've failed, they're being judged, they're going into exile, and now you have this servant who, who, you know, where Israel failed, he is taking up the task that God had originally given to Israel. And so where Israel was rebellious, and remember, they turned back to Egypt, they returned to their sin, they went back to the idolatry that they knew, the servant was going to obey in verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. So you have the servant promising, pledging, and proclaiming that he's not going to rebel. Israel, they turned back. They returned to their idolatry. I'm not going to do this. You have that pledge from the servant. 
um, Israel constantly throughout their history, one of the major sins that they get judged for is that they were always looking to these pagan nations for protection. They didn't trust God to protect and preserve them and to keep his word. And so they'd make alliances with Egypt and with Assyria, and they would try to you know, hedge their bets with these powerful empires that compromised them. That's even how it ended up happening with Solomon. Solomon married you know, a woman who was outside of the covenant of Israel, and that led to all kinds of idolatry. Ahab with Jezebel, the same thing. This was a constant problem for Israel. But what the servant says is that um, in verse 7, he says, The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. And so the servant, he's not... Um, looking to you know the the pagan nations and the outside world and you know all of these wicked men for his help, he says the Lord God is my help. I know through God that I will not be put to shame. So I'm going to do my mission that God has called me to do. And so you again you see this agreement between God and this servant. The servant is going to obey. God is going to ensure his victory and help him. You also have the other, you know, kind of the the flip side of that reality. So Israel would make alliances with pagan nations because they were afraid of their enemies. They didn't trust that God was actually going to conquer the enemies. But the servant, in contrast, is going to be confident and courageous. In verse eight, he says, "Who will contend with me? Let him. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me." Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? So you have the servant showing perfect faithfulness and trust that God is going to assure his victory, that God is going to conquer every enemy. And you start to get this picture of the servant who's going to willingly suffer. He says there in verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike. I I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I didn't hide my face from disgrace and spitting. He described that he is going to suffer anything that God calls him to suffer, and yet he's going to remain obedient. Unlike Israel, who the minute they started suffering, turned back away from God. The minute they were wandering in the wilderness and hungry and thirsty, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Throughout their history, as soon as they were faced with any adversity, they turned away from God. Instead, you have the servant who trusts in God, who's going to obey God perfectly, who knows that God is going to conquer every enemy. And so he will suffer willingly and unwaveringly trust God throughout, knowing that his faithfulness will be vindicated. So again, you're seeing this agreement that Isaiah is describing, this arrangement between God and his servant. Turn over to Isaiah 61. Towards the end of the book, Isaiah is wrapping it up. And it's a book that ends with so much hope because it looks forward to what this servant is going to ultimately accomplish. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3 We read, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So there's the servant declaring what ultimately he's going to accomplish, that he's going to succeed in bringing about this perfect kind of reconciliation and deliverance for God's people, that he was going to be anointed by God. And that anointed is an important word. The anointing is what was done to the king. Anointed me is is the translation from where we get Messiah. It's also where we get Christ. And so the 
the anointed one is the Messiah. And so here, by the end of the book of Isaiah, you're seeing, okay, this servant is the Messiah. They're the same person. This is the the king who we're waiting for. And so he's going to be greater than any other of the kings that came from David's line. But also, he's going to be humble, and he's going to suffer, and he's going to, um, you know, be... As, we, as we'll see when we get to Isaiah 53, there's going to be nothing about him that's going to scream out, here's the king, and yet this is the one whom God is sending. So it's the Messiah who's going to bring about this reconciliation, who's going to proclaim good news, who's going to announce that mercy and deliverance have finally come in full, that his coming is going to mark the end of mourning and the beginning of rejoicing. He says that... I'm going to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, gladness instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That his arrival marks the beginning of the consummation that everybody's been waiting for. The uh, beginning of blessing, the dawn of light is going to finally come with this Messiah, with this servant. And so the ministry of the servant, when he came, was going to mark an era of glory and of hope. And like I said, of true consummation, that he is going to fulfill all the hopes and all the potential of the old covenant. That everything that was foreshadowed, everything that was revealed in part under the old covenant is going to come to fruition and be expressed in fullness in the person of the servant. And so you have kind of sketched out through Isaiah this servant who is called by God, commissioned by God, who has promised God that he is going to fulfill these obligations. He's going to obey. He's going to remain faithful even through suffering. And he is going to ultimately bring about this consummation. And then on God's part, he's going to give him his spirit. He is going to lead him by the hand. He's going to ensure that he is victorious. All that makes sense? Good. Turn over to Luke chapter 4 so we can finally answer Andy's burning question of who is this, this servant character. And so this is where, again, we get the idea that there is an eternal agreement between God the Father and God the Son to bring about the kingdom, the, the, the planned kingdom of God. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he said to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So you have Jesus taking that passage from Isaiah 61 that we read, talking about the servant, talking about the Messiah. Who is this? You know, This is God's servant whom he's called and lifted up. Jesus reads it and says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled. I am the servant. I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And I'm the one who's going to bring about all this glory and all these promises. That Christ himself is identified as the servant of God who's been called and set apart for this mission of bringing about consummation. That Jesus is the greater son who will fulfill everything that Israel failed to fulfill. That he was the greater king who's going to establish justice over the whole earth, unlike the Davidic kings who failed in it. That Jesus was the one who would bring about true deliverance, true consummation, proclaim true liberty, true freedom from bondage. Not just the types and the shadows and the slavery that the people had in Egypt, but the true slavery to sin that we all are held captive to. Jesus came and proclaimed the end of that, deliverance from that. And so this role of the servant is commissioned by the Father and is embraced by the Son. There is an agreement within the triune God from all eternity that the Father would 
send the son and the son would accomplish all of this work. And so all of this is um, important for us if we want to attain that full assurance of faith that God sets before us to understand the eternal commitments that stand behind our own personal salvation. All good? Any questions? So, we have this divine agreement between the Son and between the Father. So what exactly are the commitments that these persons in the Godhead make? The Son's commitments... First of all, to become incarnate, to take on human flesh. Now we're going to get to flipping around. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. You guys actually don't have to flip to all of these. I'm just going to flip and read as we get there. Hebrews 10.5, we read this. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That the you know, He's quoting from Psalm 40 there, which is talking about um, the, this person who's going to be a, you know, a slave of God. It's used here by the apostle to describe Jesus, saying that he came into the world with... Um, as a, as a slave of God in the body that God had prepared for him. So part of the son's commitment was to take on human flesh. We're told in Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Jesus, God the Son, pledged, committed himself, to be born in the likeness of man, to take on human flesh, to uh, dwell in this body that the Father had prepared for him. Because if the Son is to be given as a covenant to the people, just like we're told in Isaiah, that God is going to give this servant as a covenant, that he must truly and faithfully represent the people. We're told earlier in Hebrews that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he can become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So the son had to become a man if he was to truly, faithfully, and adequately represent man in a covenant before God. The son was to take on the nature of a creature in order to represent the creature. He was to be humbled. We're told in Philippians 2 that he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. Instead of holding on to his eternal divine right of glory, Jesus masked his glory by taking on a human nature, by being born in the likeness of man. He left his rightful glory to dwell among his own creation. So that's a commitment by the Son before the Father that he is going to do this radical thing of becoming a man, taking on human flesh, the creator entering into creation. Secondly, the Son committed to the Father to obey the law. We're told in Galatians 4.4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. Uh, Romans chapter 5, if you want to turn over there. Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. We read, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So you have this, again, reality of the son committing to obey the law on behalf of the people he's representing He wasn't just to represent the people, but he was to represent them in righteousness. Man's problem is that he already has a sinful head in Adam, right? Just like we're told in Romans 5. 
one man's trespass. The sin of Adam leads to condemnation for all men. Adam represented every single one of us in the garden when he sinned. When Adam sinned, he brought covenant curses on all of his offspring. We already have an unrighteous head, so it wouldn't do any use for God to send a servant who's just as unrighteous as Adam was. The son needed to obey the law in full. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He had to keep the law in our place if he's going to represent us in righteousness. So it was necessary not only for him to become man, but to obey perfectly on behalf of man as a second Adam, a second representative for a new humanity. So that's the second commitment of the Son. He becomes incarnate. He commits to obey the law perfectly as a man. And then thirdly, the Son is committed to offer himself in the place of an elect people. Turn to Isaiah 53. This is kind of the... uh, highlight of the servant songs and I'm actually going to read the entirety of Isaiah 53 because if we're trying to build the case that there's this commitment between God the Father and God the Son you have Isaiah 53 right in the middle of the servant songs of Isaiah, which highlights this reality, and especially the son's commitment to give himself as a substitute for a particular people. And so we read, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement of pe- was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so what's the constant refrain of this chapter of scripture, of this song? It's that he is going to suffer for us. He takes our iniquities he suffers our griefs and so we get in return righteousness and life he pays the price for our transgressions he is pierced for our iniquities but by his wounds we are healed so he suffers the consequences we get the benefits that's what's going on in isaiah 53 that's what's being described and you get it all over the place in the rest of the new testament applying this to jesus first peter 2 He quotes from Isaiah 53 uh, um, and attributes it to Jesus explicitly. Galatians 3, we're told that um, 
Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Uh, we're told in Philippians chapter 2 that... Um, Philippians 2, man, I had it and I lost it. Um, that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the son, as a part of this eternal divine agreement with his father, pledges himself not only to become a man and not only to obey on man's behalf, but also to suffer and die as a substitute for his people. The son could not deliver anybody from the covenant curse inherited from Adam without himself becoming a curse. That's the whole problem. When Adam sinned, that meant justice had to be served. God promised just punishment, curse, on Adam and all of his offspring. And so that has to be satisfied. The curses of that covenant need to be executed. And so the only hope of any person for being for to to not suffer those curses is for somebody else to suffer them for us. Somebody who doesn't deserve it. And that is Jesus Christ. That's God the Son. He promises he will suffer the penalty for the sake of his people to redeem them from the curse. He delivered us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Does all that make sense? So that's what the son pledges to do. I want you guys to turn then to John chapter 17, because you get Jesus himself in John 17, sort of explaining his own mission in terms of this agreement between him and his father that goes back all the way into eternity. That the whole life of Jesus, all of his life on this earth is marked by obedience to the commitments that he made to his father. That's the whole life and ministry of Jesus. Everything he did was out of obedience to the father. You have this Jesus constantly throughout his ministry. I came not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That everything I say, I speak not of my own accord, but I speak only what I've been told. Everything Jesus did was to do the will of his father in heaven. And in John 17, you have that highlighted, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And so what do you see there throughout? Jesus is saying, these are your people. I've done everything that you called me to do. He says that I have completed the work that you've given me to do. I've kept your people. I've manifested your word among them. I've shown them your glory. Everything that you sent me to do, I have done. That was Jesus' life. It was a mission to obey the commitments that he made to his father, to be the king and the mediator, to rule his people and to represent his people, and to do this by taking on a like nature to them, by obeying the law perfectly, and then by dying in their place. And so you have the son acknowledging these commitments that he made with his father to accomplish these particular works. And then we see Jesus in his life um, actually achieving these works. 
And that's one of the reasons why the actual historical reality of the work of Jesus is so important to us. That's why we can't even entertain for a second, oh, like, you know, this is kind of a mythology around Jesus, and, you know, this is a, you know, sort of quasi-historical document, but it's sort of just a myth or a legend. Not at all. If we don't have the actual, real, historical, in time and space, obedience, death, and resurrection of God the Son then we don't have anything. We don't have a faith. And so we have to insist on the real historical Jesus because he had to accomplish these things in real life to deliver his people from the curse and to bring us to consummation. So you have in John 17, especially, Jesus acknowledging these commitments, these obligations he has before the Father, but he also throughout there mentions and alludes to commitments that the father has given to him when he says glorify me and things like that you know he says that i have done all this and now father you keep this people you do this it indicates that all the obligations aren't just on the part of the son the father also has entered into commitment to the son and so what is the father committed to do first of all to equip the Son for his ministry by the Holy Spirit. We saw this in Isaiah 42. My servant whom I have chosen, I have given him my spirit. I have put my spirit upon him. And then in uh, Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, you have this, um, this promise fulfilled. We're told, Matthew 3.16, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So you had the Spirit not just coming and dwelling on him for a time, but coming to rest on him. The Holy Spirit remained on Jesus throughout his ministry. It was unlike David and his sons, Jesus received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You know, the um, and we see this fulfilled at Pentecost when the apostles and, you know, the people with them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Whereas in the Old Covenant, you would have the Spirit poured out in a lesser measure to fewer people for this, you know, sort of extraordinary tasks that they were called to. But the prophets you know, look forward to a time when everybody is going to receive the fullness of God's Spirit. And so you have Jesus, the servant, receiving this fullness of the Spirit who's going to equip him to obey and to fulfill his obligations. And then when Jesus is resurrected and ascended into heaven, he then pours out the Spirit in fullness onto all of his people, not just those who are kind of particularly called for a special service. Does that make sense? So you have God promises, the Father promises the Son that he would give him the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This would assure his success. The Spirit would not be removed. There was no threat of the Spirit being removed. But for his entire, the entirety of his mission, God the Son would be equipped by the Holy Spirit who would help him to succeed in his mission. The Holy Spirit is the helper. And he does the same thing for us. The Holy Spirit now dwells in us and is our helper as we strive to imitate Christ in obedience and in righteousness. So that's one of the Father's commitments. The Father also promises to raise the Son from the dead. So the Son promises that he's going to die for his people. But the Father in turn promises that he's going to raise him up again. In Psalm 16, verse 10, David writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter at Pentecost takes that psalm, applies it to Jesus, saying that David was speaking of Jesus not remaining dead in the ground, not 
seeing the corruption of decay in the earth, but being physically raised up from the dead. And so God guarantees to the Son from all eternity, when you give your life as a ransom for many, I'm going to raise you up again. Jesus in Matthew 12 um, applies the historical event of Jonah to his resurrection. Jesus says in Matthew 12:40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus understood, you know, he said the same thing when he cleansed the temple. Tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And he was talking about his body. Jesus was constantly telling his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be dead, and three, and three days later I'm going to be raised. Jesus understood that his father had promised to resurrect him from the dead. So Jesus would willingly give his life, fully confident that he would be raised up, vindicated by the father. He would take the curse, but he wouldn't remain cursed. He would put the curse away once and for all. And then lastly, the father promises the son that he will exalt him and he will give him a kingdom. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. God says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Psalm 110, 1 and 2. G uh, we hear it's written that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The scepter goes out from Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. You have that promise from the father to the son, to the servant, that you are going to receive the nations as your inheritance. You are going, all of your enemies are going to be subdued under your feet and you're going to be given the very ends of the earth as your possession. You are going to receive this kingdom. Jesus said before his ascension, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the son, Jesus, recognized and understood that this was his inheritance, that when he completed the task, he was going to receive the reward. Philippians 2, 9 and 10, after Jesus you know, took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the promise from the Father to the Son. When you complete this work, I am going to give you the entire earth as your inheritance to be your kingdom. And that's why at the beginning of his ministry, when Jesus was out in the wilderness and Satan was tempting him, and Satan took him to this high mountain and said, look out at all the glories of all the nations. I will give you these if you bow down to me. Satan was offering Jesus the kingdoms that he that were his birthright without the cross, saying, if you just bow down to me the way that Israel bowed down to idols instead of trusting God, then I'll give you these kingdoms and you won't have to suffer, you won't have to die, you won't have to bear the curse. Jesus said, you know, he conquered Satan in the wilderness. He went to the cross. He fulfilled everything the Father gave him to do. And now he has rightly received all the ends of the earth, all the nations as his inheritance. Ephesians 1, and this is one of the reasons why I love Ephesians, because it shows the grandness of God's plan. That's not just individual salvation. It includes that, but it's so much more than that. Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 21 um, that we should see what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every other name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And so you have... God has fulfilled his word. He showed his power by raising up Jesus from the dead and giving him that seat of authority and that place of preeminence over every other name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And so you have 
the commitments on the part of the Son, the commitments on the part of the Father. And it's important for us to understand that this arrangement, this agreement, is works-based. So our salvation is by grace alone, right? We receive it as a free gift. We don't do anything ever to earn it. But the arrangement between God the Father and God the Son that actually crushed all the curses that were brought into the world by Adam, that is works-based. The Son had to perfectly complete all of the works set before him if he was going to receive his promised inheritance. And that's why a lot of people like to call this a covenant, because the Son had to do these works and then earn these blessings from the Father. But here's our great assurance, and this is why we can be certain of our salvation. Again, when we look back at the historical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, because the Son did all these works perfectly, the promised reward is going to be received in full, perfectly, by Christ. The Father is not going to back out from his promises. And that's why I want us to understand this eternal agreement between the Father and the Son, because that stands behind our new covenant relationship with God. This is the foundation of the new covenant. The Son did these works and earned this inheritance. The new covenant, as we're going to see, is that we get the inheritance that Christ earned through faith in him. When we believe in him, he mediates these blessings on our behalf. That's the new covenant, but standing behind it is this agreement between the Father and the Son. When Jesus completed this work, he earned the right to become the federal head of a new covenant people. So um, it's his obedience that qualifies him to represent the elect of God. Um, and so now with Christ, there's no longer just one ultimate head over the human race, because that was the, the, the reality. You're in Adam. Everyone born is in Adam, and so you're cursed. But now you have a second Adam to represent man before God, to represent a recreated humanity. And what you have in this agreement between the Father and the Son it really goes back to and parallels the covenant of life that God made with Adam in the garden, where he created Adam as a son of God in his own image. He made him a prophet, priest, and king, and he called him to conquer the enemy and bring the creation into its consummated rest. Adam failed, and so now with Christ, we have the only begotten, perfect Son of God, the perfect image of God in human flesh, who is called as a prophet, priest, and king to conquer the enemy, uh, represent his people, and bring them into their consummate rest for all creation. And so this divine agreement, it is necessary for our assurance. There's this unbreakable compact between the Father and the Son if it's true that Jesus fulfilled everything that he was called to fulfill, if the historical account of Jesus that we have is true, then there is absolutely no possible way that he will not receive his inheritance, that he will not receive the nations, the ends of the earth. And so for us, we can have unshakable faith that if we are in Christ, then we are heirs of all these promises as well. So our assurance rests on this double foundation of the Son's perfectly completed work in history and this unbreakable pledge from the Father that he is going to give his Son the full reward that he earned. And so that's going to be the background and foundation when we get into the actual uh implementation of the new covenant and the ratification of the new covenant next week. Do you guys have any questions or anything for me? I do have one. What's that? Being the covenant, you know, there's the rewards and if there are penalties too, right? Mm -hmm. When would it have been the penalty? Jesus wouldn't have done that. Is it written anywhere? And so that's why I don't like to call this agreement between the Father and Son of Covenant because I don't think there are any penalties attached to it. Um, people who do say that this is a covenant 
between the father and the son. They say that the punishment, or they, they, they kind of tie the punishment into what Christ suffered on the cross, or they will define covenant in a way where the sanctions aren't necessary. But I don't think that's a strong definition. And again, there's many, many great theologians who say this is a covenant between the father and the son. I disagree with that because there are no clear sanctions. It's not like if Jesus failed, this would have happened. Again, I, well, I don't think it was possible for Jesus to fail. And so, you know, I'll call it an agreement, a pact, an oath, whatever. But I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a covenant. Anything else? All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you that your word is unbreakable and is trustworthy. Lord, your wisdom, your ways are past finding out. And it just seems like so much of this study is us groping around in darkness because we are trying to contemplate with our finite minds the infinite wisdom of the triune God. And it is just so glorious beyond our grasp. But God, thank you that you have revealed it to us in such a way where we can sufficiently understand it and we can dig down to understand it more and more. And additionally, Lord God, you have you have brought it to our level so much so that God the Son came and lived on our level and preached and dwelt among us and did this in time and in space and in history. And God, I pray that these truths would actually impact the way that we live, that the, the fact that the Creator became a man, the fact that He is raised from the dead in a physical body and dwelling in the heavenlies right now as the King overall, that these truths would actually change the way that we live, that we would live confidently and boldly and courageously and with zeal, proclaiming the rule and reign of the Son, confident that you will bring all your people to yourself, that every single one of your promises and your plans are going to come to pass. Lord, let us have full assurance of faith, and then a faith that actually acts in faith. And it's all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.